Okay, let's get started with week four. Uh, welcome to ASS 203, and we are, just as a reminder, at the second part of module two for this unit. Uh, so you might recall that um, last week, we had a general look at classification and um, understood uh, not only classification as naming, but about uh, why we grouped certain things together into certain categories and how we grouped certain things together according to certain categories. Um, and these were the chains of inference uh, that we were introduced to uh, not only in um, through the classical categories, but also through prototype theory and ethnoclassification. Uh, two of those chains of inferences were the logical principles that underlie how we create categories, how we understand certain things as going together, um, either as things or as actions. Uh, we were, if you recall, introduced to two thinkers who argued that our logical principles and systems of classification could not be applied directly to how others classify and categorize the world. Uh, these two thinkers were um, Lucien Levy-Brule on the one hand and Claude Levi-Strauss on the other. Now, they weren't arguing the same uh, sorts of things, but they were both arguing against the idea that we could um, simply and directly apply our logical principles and ways of grouping things together to other groups of people. So this week, what we will do in today's lecture is extend on these preliminary insights uh, to understand more about primitive classifications, shall we say, quote unquote, um, some of the ramifications of the debate and how categorizing persons is, as we will have realized uh, from module one of this unit, not quite as straightforward as we think. And to do this, to understand um, the complexities around categorizing persons, I uh, hope you're looking forward to revisiting uh, ASS 101 and the set text for that unit, which was um, Evans Pritchard's work on witchcraft um, and oracles among the uh, the Azandi. Uh, for those who haven't uh, done ASS 101, that's completely fine. We're not going to assume uh, prior knowledge uh, in any way, uh, but uh, if you have already uh, read the Zandi text, then uh, the second part of today's lecture, I think, will be uh, a, a, a rewarding um, as a way to reinterpret or re-understand some parts of that text, okay? So let's just start, before anything else, um, by looking at some categories. And actually, we're just going to look at one uh, ethnographic example. And we look at a comparison of categories. I'm not going to fully get into um, the uh, ins and outs of these different categories, but I will just uh, introduce it as a prompt, as a way for you to also uh, have um, more exposure to the set text for this unit, which is uh, the book called From the Enemy's Point of View, Humanity and Divinity in an Amazonian Society, right? So we will look in depth at that book in week seven and eight, 
but I thought I would introduce uh, uh, some parts of the book throughout uh, the modules uh, leading up to week seven and eight. And so let's have a look at the example of beer. <laughs> what is beer? Uh, I'm trying to imagine your faces in the lecture room as I pose this question. Uh, the smiles around um, the room as we each kind of consider our own sort of relationships with beer, our own thoughts on beer, our own experiences um, with uh, our last drink of beer. And as you all will know, I suppose, I hope, uh, beer is part, very much part of Australian life and Australian culture. Uh, it comes about as the fermentation of cereal grains and uh, by, you know, uh, by yeast or cultures. And it really is the conversion, if we think about it from quite symbolic, uh, sorry, scientific point of view, it is the conversion of carbohydrates or sugars into alcohol. Right, so beer is found in um, many different groups and many different cultures around the world. It, you can almost think about uh, this kind of statement as true that everyone drinks beer or every group has their own kind of beer made from different kinds of cereal grains. You can make it from potatoes, you can make it from, uh, uh, sorry, that's vodka. You can make it from barley, you can make it from maize, uh, you can make it from any of those cereal grains. And it is the conversion of the carbohydrates in those grains into alcohol. But as you might also appreciate, uh, there are different categories between for example, our understanding of beer, and as another example, the Arawete understanding of beer. Now, the Arawete are the specific Amerindian group that is the subject of the set text for this unit, which is from the enemy's point of view. So start to get used to that name, the Arawete, because you will be hearing more about them uh, as the weeks progress. And certainly you'll be reading about them in detail during weeks seven and eight. And if you uh, go to chapter five of the book uh, for this unit, you will uh, read in extreme detail um, the Arawete understandings of beer and uses of beer and categories of beer. And as you can start to already appreciate, they are very different from ours, all right? So what I wanted to just flag and highlight in this sort of initial example, I will talk more about uh, beer at the end of this lecture, but what I just wanted to flag and highlight is the importance not only of context, right, which is the specific kind of conditions in a certain time and place, um, for example, in Melbourne, or in Geelong uh, on the 30th of March 2020 around beer, but also of interpretive analysis in terms of how we understand beer, how we think about beer as going together with other things into a certain category, for example, alcohol, but also in terms of other things, in ways that uh, signal different kinds of going together, beer with a warm summer's day and the cricket, for example, right? So what all of this suggests to us is that the materiality of something might not be what it seems, or the materiality of something like beer 
might not be the only thing of what it seems. And the other kind of um, corollary, which is that the immateriality of something might be more than it seems, right? So something that you can't see, maybe the symbolic aspect, the meaning of something might be more than it seems uh, in terms of its material. And, and that is a really kind of key point, I, I would say, from today's lecture, is to think about what we have in front of us that we might be able to see, that we might be able to uh, observe, even through a microscope. So it doesn't have to be just direct physical sight. It can be microscopic um, or microscope-enabled sight, right? With what else goes on around that particular thing, the, the, the symbols of something or the meanings of something. And that's really what's at stake when we continue to push and to probe what we think of being a human uh, is, or what we think being a person is. All of these are ways for us to, um, to try to expand our understanding beyond that of the physicality of something, all right? So this is what we're going to uh, try to uh, look and examine in more detail uh, for today's lecture. So in the first part of today's lecture, we're going to uh, look at um, the movement uh, in terms of how we uh, make things go together, right? H how that's framed uh, by certain ways of looking at the world from certain understandings of, of the world. Um, and then looking in part two of today's lecture in more detail at the specific example of the Azandi witch, right? Many of you will have uh, uh, learned about this in ASS 101, but if you haven't, that's fine. I'll cover enough about it to give you a sense of what is at stake, because um, in the re required reading for week four, you'll be uh, looking at Martin Mills's reinterpretation of that work and uh, a, a kind of different suggestion of what it means to be a person in this particular place and in amongst the, um, the particular group of the Azandi. So this is, uh, I hope, uh, a way for us to um, kind of come to terms with uh, module, the end of module two, which is uh, seen in, in sort of partnership with what we initially started to question in module one, which is what is a human what is a person? How can we expand our understanding of that? Okay? So let's begin with the first part of today's lecture. Um, just by way of introduction, I thought I would introduce this particular word or this term, and that is cosmology. What is a cosmology? Um, you know, many of you might be aware of um, the work of the astrophysicist um, Brian Cox. He's quite a popular scientist um, in, in, uh, nowadays. And in many ways, cosmology can be thought of as a kind of uh, branch of science or discipline, right? What is out there in the cosmos in terms of particulate matter draws in um, quantum physics, it draws in uh, ideas of, of what there is in the universe, uh, black holes and dying suns and stars. Uh, so that is one uh, idea of cosmology, um, but it is not the 
part of cosmology that we're, we're focused on in anthropology. Because in anthropology, cosmology is used in a certain way. And it's used to denote the total social cultural world of a particular group of people. And by total, I mean not only the social cultural world of um, the environment around us, but also of the cosmos of that particular group. Um, so we can see that for many groups of people around the world, usually referred to as quote unquote indigenous, cosmologies or their cosmologies are peopled with a variety of beings that carry distinct meanings and significance. So I already kind of introduced you to the cosmology of um, or to one part of the cosmology of Tibetan people by introducing the mountain, uh, Jara, uh, denoted by that beautiful snow mountain, the image of that mountain as a territorial deity. So in the cosmology of Tibetan nomads of this particular area in Eastern Tibet, Jara is a territorial deity that forms part of the cosmology of this group, right? Jara is a part, is, is a person really, regarded as a person in the sociocultural world of Tibetan nomads of this area. And they interact with him in particular ways. Jara has a wife mountain, Jamu, and you know, they are part of, uh, they're linked in a kinship way to lots of other mountains in this area. So all of these mountains form the cosmology of Tibetan nomads of this particular area. Uh, and another example, and of course, cosmologies will be different for different groups of people. So in the Arawete um, cosmology, humans are regarded as, quote, those who were left behind, close quote. So humans are part of a cosmology that also includes uh, gods and terrestrial spirits. And this cosmology is also sort of um, delineated uh, uh, spatially so that humans occupy the Earth, but there's also a subterranean world below the Earth, as well as two celestial tiers above the Earth. And each of these tiers, the sub subterranean world, the celestial tiers, are inhabited by their own beings, such as terrestrial spirits or uh, subterrestrial spirits and also the gods um, and the true gods. As you can see, this cosmology is, is really complex. It's really kind of encompassing. It, it totalizes how the Arawete, how Tibetan nomads understand the world around them. And this world, as I will uh, have to repeat, is not only occupied by human beings of homo sapiens, but also peopled by a variety of beings, some of whom can be seen and not seen. Cosmological accounts in anthropology are narratives that are usually regarded as cosmogonic myths. That is how the world and people came into existence, right? So these cosmogonic myths um, around the Arawete, for example, as those who were left behind, the forsaken ones, uh, that forms part of how the Arawete think of the world and how they came into being. Um, 
again, uh, sort of in the uh, sort of Western Christian world, uh, that you can say that the origin story in the Bible is a form of cosmogonic myth, right, in terms of Adam and Eve and the tree of knowledge and the tree of life and death. How the world and its people came into existence is recorded within that particular story or that particular account. Uh, so I'd like us to fully appreciate now even that um, cosmogonic myths and ideas of cosmology are, are not only something that can occur for or, um, or be present for indigenous, so-called indigenous people, but also for us here who are living, um, you know, supposedly modern lives in the 21st century. Right, so now this whole idea of cosmology is really important to bear in mind, especially with regard to um, groups of people usually referred to as quote-unquote indigenous, because what a cosmology does is it frames, um, it kind of totalizes the, the world and the meanings in the world for that particular group of people. It's a really kind of important sort of almost blueprint or template by which people, um, usually referred to as indigenous, are seen to understand and interpret things around them. Now, the significance of this um, is what I'm going to go into in the next couple of slides, right? The significance of this with regard, for example, to how the um, things in the environment are understood and um, interpreted are really important. So, for example, we might see a tree out there, and I'm looking again from my home office to the, the, uh, the gum, the yellow gum that's just outside my window. And we might see a tree, and this tree is signaled for us by its physical characteristics and also by its common properties with others that bear uh, similar physical uh, characteristics. And we'll say, oh, well, that is a yellow gum. It's a species of, uh, you know, a certain gum eucalypt variety. And it's also something that I might put in the category of tree. This is because my cosmology is that of science and that of modern science, right? Given from a kind of classification from Linnaeus and given to interpret physical properties as the defining properties and possibly the total properties of something. Now, if another person from, say, uh, another group, say an indigenous Australian person, were to look at that same tree, with his own cosmology, that tree would be interpreted or symbolized in a different way. Right. There would be a different meaning uh, in, in that regard. And this is what we're trying to get at um, with the kind of content for this part of the lecture is that the cosmology that you have really kind of frames the interpretation and the meaning that you might attribute to something. And for this, and to understand this a bit more, and the implications of this in terms of how it kind of uh, goes through uh, a, a certain society or certain group, let's look at a really classic early work by Emile Durkheim and Marcel Mauss called Primitive Classification. The primitive classification uh, was written in 1906. It's quite a long time ago. And for many of you who might know, Durkheim was kind of um, the founder of sociology 
um, and really in the forefront in terms of our understandings of religion. So what Durkheim would propose in his book called The Elementary Forms of the Religious Life was that you know, when so-called primitive groups or indigenous groups have something that they call a religion, it's not so much that they have a god or some kind of being uh, that's out there and present the way we might think of a Christian God or, you know, a kind of um, Jewish um, uh, Yahweh, right, uh, that's outside of, of um, the society. What Durkheim um, was suggesting or suggested in that very important book was that God was society or, or really society was God. It was in the sort of collective effervescence of the society that you found something like religion. So religion was fundamentally sociological for him. It wasn't about those sorts of gods. And in this way, and extending from this, he wrote with his nephew, Marcel Mous, an essay called Primitive Classification. And in this essay, he says, quote, the first logical categories were social categories. The first classes of things were classes of men into which these things were integrated. It was because men were grouped and thought of themselves in the form of groups that in their ideas, they grouped other things. Moities were the first genera, clans the first species. Things were thought to be integral parts of society and it was their place in society which determined their place in nature, close quote. Now, what does this mean? What is the implication for this um, quote? It's basically saying that social categories, the way that societies, and here he's referring to indigenous Australian societies, formed themselves into groups. It was this sort of grouping that then extended out to um, categorize or to uh, influence how indigenous Australians thought about things in their natural environment. So moities, moities as a particular kind of social grouping were the first genera, as in the first genus in terms of Linnaeus, right? Clans, the clans within those moities, the ways that people organize them, kins, kinship members organized themselves into clans were the first species. So you can see here what's being implied. It is not that the tree that I'm looking at there, genus eucalypt, right, species, um, whatever, something, uh, um, uh, gosh, what's a species for eucalypt, something else. It's not that those were the categories that were first uh, imposed out there, but rather a specific moiety, a grouping, say, based on uh, one's totem, and also clan, a, sub, a subgrouping within that moiety, would then figure and um, be the template by which one uh, assumed things out in the environment as being together. Does that make sense? So if your moiety was crocodile, then and the clan within that was emu, then crocodile and emu were grouped together as genera and species. 
which from a Linnaean classificatory perspective wouldn't make sense, right? Didn't, wouldn't make sense that you'd group cro crocodile and emu together in the same kind of um, order or family because physically their properties were different. But what Durkheim and most were proposing was that primitive classification didn't work according to those um, principles from Linnaeus. Rather, they worked according to the principles of social categories. And it was those social categories that provided the logical template by which indigenous Australians would then look at the world around them and group things in a certain way. Group things uh, according to how they went together. They went together not according to physical properties, but according to their place in society. All right, so that's a really important point that, we're, that we were to receive or to get from Durkheim and most. And what that implied was something quite significant. That basically, as I said again, for Durkheim, religion wasn't something out there. Religion was actually in society, right? God was in society. The idea of God was in society. And so the basic idea of Durkheim's form elementaire, which is the elementary forms of the religious life, is not functionalism, but a remarkable parallelism between the world of the gods and human society. And so it was really human society for Durkheim that created the template by which the world of the gods would be understood, but also the world of nature or the environment would be understood. A classificatory system here is seen as ultimately a whole or rather it is the unique whole to which everything is related, close quote. So conceptions of society parallel conceptions of the universe for Durkheim. And here you can see the kind of similarities with an anthropological understanding of cosmology, it's kind of depending which one you want to put first as your template, for anthropologists, um, working with indigenous groups, cosmology was what you would put first, you know, how they understood this overarching sort of framework to which different components were put in place. And then for Durkheim as a sociologist, it was actually human society that provided the template from which to understand not only the world of the gods, but also the world of the environment or nature, shall we say. Durkheim and Moos presented a situation where the classifications of social groups into moities and clans or into particular segmentary kinship systems would find parallels not only with the natural world but also with the world of the gods. Now, this is an interesting point, and I'm not trying to uh, convince you that either one or the other cosmology or um, uh, you know, primitive classification as Durkheim and most presented it is correct or not. But what they were both suggesting, and this is where it's interesting, it's a little bit like a parallel with the Levi Brule and Levi Strauss examples from last week. They're both saying different things, but they're both also saying the same thing in regard to something else. And the in regard to something else for both cosmology and Durkheim's elementary forms of the religious life is that the human mind does not have an innate capacity to construct complex systems of classification. So that is to say, there is no 
innate quote-unquote capacity to categorize. There is no classical category, if we want to use the language from last week, that says categories are abstract, they're universal, they're these things that you will, um, if you just think long and hard enough about, you will all come to the same conclusion. Instead, the implications for both of these um, examples um, that I've presented is that they're both of them, either cosmology or the um, society, serves as a model for the arrangement of ideas. And that therefore, there is an integral connection, a really important connection between social grouping and symbolic classification. So for Durkheim and Motes, and I'm just going to say also, I mean, there, there have been um, criticisms of, of this work, um, you know, from 1905, you can imagine, 100 years later, and, you know, some people are still not at all convinced. But the important thing here to take um, home is that, the, um, that you're looking at evidence from um, indigenous persons, like Australian indigenous co communities or Native American communities. And what Durkheim and Mouse were arguing is that there is a correlation, however you want to understand it. Maybe, you know, one doesn't come before the other, maybe it's not a cause and effect, but that there is a co correlation between the classification of moieties and clans of human persons and classification of the quote-unquote natural world. Right, so the society gives a totem, and that totem uh, is the kind of symbolic meaning of that thing or that animal in nature. The template for understanding that comes from the social grouping. This is what Durkheim and Moss were arguing. As I said, there have been criticisms of this work, and as I said, this actually is, is distinct from um, an argument uh, in anthropology for cosmology. However, there is an important step that uh, is, continues to be important for us to appreciate here, which is the integral connection between social grouping and symbolic classification. Because with the insights generated by Durkheim and Mauss, particularly on the common principles of order and thinking, we are able to move from something that we call the social, in terms of social classification or social groupings, to something that we call the symbolic. How is meaning, how, what is a symbol of something? What does it mean? And how are these meanings created, achieved, and maintained. So these insights on the common principles of order and of thinking across social, natural, and cosmological levels, as well as the categories themselves, reveals the content of mind. It kind of reveals how things went together, how we would uh, sort of uh, either disregard or uh, put more importance on certain logical principles, for example. And all of this had profound influence on a number of anthropologists who came after Durkheim and Moos, including Levi-Strauss, Mary Douglas, and Edmund Leach. And if it was an important influence, if only to inspire them to argue against this by arguing for the capacity of mind. Okay, so this is an interesting kind of um, it, in sort of more detailed nitty-gritty about anthropology as a discipline uh, that perhaps some of you might have, might want to know. Uh, but it really uh, is important to recognize that the insights that are generated by this argument then provoked other 
anthropologists uh, to either argue against this or to accept this. But it was basically to say the um, principles of order and thinking revealed the content of mind. And not only content, but also capacity of mind. All of this is absolutely connected to the idea of how we classify and how we group certain things together, right? So uh, both um, Levi-Strauss and Edmund Leach, for example, would uh, give greater attention to how humans attribute meaning to the world around them. So for example, Levi-Strauss would argue uh, for the binary opposition of symbols and how this worked, which is at the heart of his theory of structuralism. Again, this particular example from Levi-Strauss and the binary opposition of symbols will come up again in weeks and eight because the theory of structuralism is very much underpinning how Viveros de Castro has written the set text for this unit, which is from the enemy's point of view, right? So keep this in mind. I'm not bringing it up just, you know, uh, for your general information, but there's something important here about how we um, then read uh, the set text later on in this unit. Others, like Mary Douglas, would engage with questions of how meaning was created, achieved, and maintained. And this would lead to interpretive analysis that you would get, for example, uh, from Clifford Geertz, right? another uh, anthropologist, American anthropologist. So with this in mind then, I think we're now in a position to come back to the meaning of beer, right? And what is beer, right? What is beer in terms of a positivist, modern scientific explanation of it, which is the fermentation of cereal grains and the conversion of uh, carbohydrates into alcohol. And that is given by material evidence. But somehow this material thing and process and evidence is, is definitely closely related to, but it does not express the entirety of the thing. Because as we know, beer is that, right? But beer is also more than quote unquote beer as, as the kind of uh, scientific, scientifically explained category or thing. Beer also creates and conveys all sorts of meanings. So for us in Melbourne, for example, it's beer garden with mates on a sunny day, or at least it was before the shutdown, the lockdown um, as a result of COVID-19, or it's summer cricket and beach days. So these are collective experiences of beer. We could also individually have specific memories of beer, having drunk too much beer, of, you know, beer, drinking beer and, and, and having that lead to certain things, right? All of these things are also sort of expressive of beer. And so let us not fall into the mistake of thinking that the materiality of something is somehow expressive of the entirety of that thing, right? The materiality of beer is certainly the conversion of carbohydrates, carbohydrates to alcohol. It's certainly the fermentation of cereal grains, but it's not all that it is. And so the meaning then becomes really important and the meanings can differ. And the, those meanings differ according to either a different cosmology, a different set of symbols, or according to Durkheim and Moos, a different kind of social grouping. So for the Arawete too, beer is more than beer. 
You can have mild or sweet beer. You can have strong or sour beer. These different beers are used in different ways according to different beer feasts associated with hosts and guests and rituals and invitations to gods. I mean, it's all there and it's all really fascinating. So I would urge you, read chapter 5 of the set text to learn more about the Arawete and beer. So similarly, with regard to a beer, we can make the same kinds of um, sort of uh, parallel uh, thinking pro processes with regard to person. So person as human being, yes, fine, is species, is biologically defined and interpreted. We know about this through DNA, through genetic coding, through all of these um, uh, sort of methods of scientific inquiry in the same way that we know about beer as fermentation and the transformation of complex carbohydrates into alcohol, right? All of that is well and good. Now, the idea of human being as species, as biologically defined, also extends into how we consider aspects of economics, politics, and law. For example, consider assumptions of the rights of a, of a human person. Right. And how that uh, is shaping is the foundation, this idea of the uh, person as individual, as the rational individual shapes um, the sort of the starting point of our systems of economics and politics and law. And what I would say is absolutely that's the case also for um, the Arawete. They understand human being in a certain kind of physically defined way. And you'll also read more about that in chapter seven, but it's uh, the chapter on birth, death, and copulation. But also, and in addition to that, there are questions about what the meaning of a person is, right? And in our context, in a sort of Western modern context, um, we have assumptions about persons having certain rights, and then the retrospective application of those rights to other things like rivers and trees, uh, perhaps of robots. And also we have this understanding that the meaning of a person might be more than just human species uh, biologically defined, right? We have personality traits, we have characteristics, we have sort of singular marks that make us more than just the human being that we are thought to be. And so again, we are trying to um, find the parallel of this and we do this in the second part of today's lecture, where we understand the meaning of person, but in a different context, and that context is provided by the Azendi, all right? And, and one thing I just want to um, sort of note before we go there, and this is um, something uh, that I will sort of more quickly go through the rest of today's lecture, uh, in order to then uh, invite you all to talk about it and discuss it more in seminars, is that um, there's a, Interesting point that uh, Martin Mills noted in, in this week's required reading. And he says, while positivist modern science enables understanding into the how of a question, it often cannot understand the why of a question. In this case, the meaning and intentionality of a person. So we understand through modern science a lot about the human body, Right, the how of a question, how something happens, how cancer cells reproduce, how the COVID-19 coronavirus um, is, is transmitted, all of these things. We understand the how, but we often cannot understand through this perspective the why of a question, why it is that the virus jumped, why it is that um, a person is 
doing what the person does, right? The meaning and intentionality of, of a person. That's not often given to us from a modern scientific point of view or perspective. And this is, I propose, what anthropology is, is actually really adept at being able to provide. The questions to understanding the why of a question or the, um, the sort of different perspectives to the understanding of a why something happens. And that includes and incorporates the meaning and intentionality of something. Okay, I'm gonna swiftly proceed to uh, part two of today's lecture. I've only got about 10 or 15 minutes left, so I'm gonna try to go through it um, in a concise way. And again, this is a, a sort of invitation for you all to read and engage with this fabulous article, I think, but also come to seminars with um, certain questions and already with certain ideas um, around this. So. The um, article that I've set is a really interesting one because you know what Martin Mills is trying to say here? He's trying to say Evans Pritchard didn't really, it's not like he had it wrong, right? Certainly we read this book called Witchcraft, Oracles and Magic among the Azandi um, and we read it, you know, sort of in a certain way understanding that what he's trying to do, Evans Pritchard, is give an account of witchcraft as uh, something not hubba-dubba, superstitious and weird, but actually as, a, as something quite rational, right? So witchcraft, um, as presented in this book, is uh, sort of presented as a kind of indigenous version of rationality, right? This is how the Azandi sort of rationalize it. And so in that way, it's not actually so irrational at all. There are two things related to this. One is that Mills says, the book that's most often referred to, actually almost 100% referred to, is the abridged version. It's the abridged version of Evans Pritchard's work, right, 1976. So it doesn't actually refer to the entirety of Evans Pritchard's work on the Azandi. And the other thing that um, uh, Mills refers to and is really quite key to framing this reading is that Evans Pritchard was admittedly concerned with anthropology as a scientific discipline. And if anthropology was to be and is to be a scientific discipline, then it really needs to deal with the question of rationality. Or in the case of many of the uh, primitive, quote unquote, indigenous people that we come across, the rationality problem. Because really, when you come to it, how do we explain comments like, twins are birds, or my toe is infected because of witchcraft, right? These are statements that anthropologists as rational persons working within a so-called scientific paradigm are kind of at loss to explain. And so they explain, or we explain it, oftentimes through um, saying, well, this is um, it's a metaphor, it's kind of an as if, right? Or we explain it by saying, oh, it's kind of like a special case of that. You know, so Azandi are really quite like rational, but like witchcraft is a special case. Or we explain it by exactly how Evans Pritchard did, by saying witchcraft comprises its own kind of rationality. And let's try to understand this indigenous rationality, right? 
But all of this clearly is still a problem and it's a problem for us because we're working within a particular sort of framework, which is a scientific one, and trying to sort of explain rather unscientific, irrational examples, ethnographic examples from real life to a different audience. So this is the kind of conundrum that anthropologists are in and continue to be in. So how do we account for this? And what Mills is pr proposing is we actually take this problem and make it front and center and that we have to do this if anthropology is not to become this kind of like slightly quaint but not very relevant discipline uh, for current modern times. Okay, so we start first with Evans Pritchard's skepticism. He was, I would say, skeptic in his, as, as much as we can see from his 1976 abridged um, book uh, and the quote there, which is, as witches as the Azandi conceived them clearly cannot exist. How do we read this quote? Was he a rationalist who thought witchcraft a, a matter of belief and incommensurable with the scientific perspective? Or was he himself a kind of magician, conjuring up differences between science and witchcraft by magical means, namely that it takes a magic trick to maintain the Western monopoly on skepticism, right? So how are we to understand this particular point and his particular skepticism? And what Martin Mills presents or argues is something really quite at the heart of all of this. And what he was arguing was that Evans Pritchard explained witchcraft among the Azandi as a kind of exceptionalism, as a kind of state of exceptionalism. So what he did was basically say, Evans Pritchard made witchcraft a kind of cultural approach to misfortune. Right? It was kind of uh, a way to explain how things were uh, or why things happened when they didn't happen as you would expect. Right? That is a, that is a, a sort of um, fundamental point that um, is being made through this article. And again, I would urge you to go into the detail of this uh, in your seminar. And witchcraft, therefore, in Evans Pritchard's 1976 uh, presentation was something quite apart from the everyday rationality and expectations of the Azandi. And another point that he uh, makes, Mills makes, is to not confuse the how with the why. So the Azandi are uh, totally uh, understanding of the how of a question. They know how the boy's foot or toe got infected. They know how the granary fell. It can offer you a very clear example and explanation for it. But the question is why? And the question around witchcraft or mangu is precisely around why this happened. Why did the boy stub his toe and why did the uh, toe get infected, right? Why did the granary fall? And so what Mills is at pains to sort of um, sort of pinpoint and identify with this particular these examples is that when we take all of this explanations um, of witchcraft from the Azandi, it's really that from the Azandi perspective, from their own point of view, 
witchcraft was not something exceptional at all. It was really part of the spectrum of everyday expectation and craft. It was really looking at the kind of degree of something happening as, a, as opposed to a kind of different kind of thing. Remember my earlier statements in earlier lectures about the difference between saying something is different in kind and something is different in degree, right? So when the indigenous Australian man, Badi Jawi man, says that it hurts my body when he sees the coastal degradation happening on his country, right? What he's expressing is a kind of hurt that is different in degree rather than a hurt that is different in kind, right? So clearly he knows that when you smack him on his arm directly on his body, that hurts and that hurt in a certain way. He's saying that when he sees whatever degradation is happening on the coast of his country and it hurts his body, it's a hurt of different degree, but of the same kind, right? And this is what we want to ensure that we understand with regard to the Azandi and witchcraft, is that when witchcraft happens, and Adams, uh, Evans Pritchard was uh, arguing for its exceptionalism, he was arguing for the exceptionalism in terms of kind of exceptionalism. It's a different kind of rationality. And what Mills is saying is, well, actually, in fact, if we look at all the entirety of the ethnographic uh, work produced by Evans Pritchard, what the Azandi would say is that witchcraft is, in fact, part of everyday craft and expectation. It's just a different degree of it. Right, and this is what he means, um, Mills, when he talks about the, uh, and this is on page, uh, oh, 25, I think, of the reading, where he goes, rather than being a distinct category of perceived action, Zandi discussions of mangu or witchcraft seem to be little more than a morally negative exposition of the very kind of extended agency that characterizes broader discussions of everyday socially expected craft. In this sense, witchcraft from a Zambi perspective seems to be a question less of metaphysics than of character. That is, of the temperamental capacity of individuals to maintain the morally appropriate boundaries of human interaction, close quote. So what this means is that witchcraft isn't about witches, really, at all, or really about witchcraft as a specific and exceptional kind of action for the Azandi. It's really more about a degree or a spectrum, and it's really to do with character. The temperamental capacity of individuals to maintain morally appropriate boundaries of human interactions. Witches are immoral. They are unable to maintain morally appropriate boundaries. They're the ones who interfere. They're the ones who can't help themselves. So they are at the end of the spectrum of appropriateness. They are not a different category altogether. So the conclusion then that Mills makes through his article is that the rationality problem, quote unquote, as presented by Evans Pritchard, is not actually about witches 
specifically, it's not about witches as this category, this exceptional category to understand misfortune and how things go wrong, but rather it's a problem about the knowledge of persons and actions in general. So really, when Evans Pritchard tells us that witches, as the Azandi conceive them, clearly cannot exist, what he really means, if we take Mills's argument and we take all the other ethnographic examples that we get from Evans Pritchard himself, what he really means is that persons, as the Azandi conceive them, clearly cannot exist. Now, this is a really important point because then it tells us that it is really persons as category, as a kind of classificatory category that is at stake in this matter, right? And it's really pushing the sort of argument about anthropology as a science fully into the um, into emphasis and into attention. It's not something that we're trying to skirt around. Really taking that moment of apparent irrationality and placing it in the limelight, in the spotlight, and saying, here it is, we're going to have to deal with it. How do we deal with it? Right? And this is how Mills proposed, proposes that we deal with this. He then proposes, according to the Azandi material, but also from his own ethnographic material on witches in Ladakh, he then proposes understanding person not as a classification, uh, classification of human being or anything like that, but rather as organizational activity. So that person then becomes this category that is defined in this particular way, not as bounded or autonomous individual acting in a rational way, not as constituted by the boundaries of the skin, but rather as an intentional agent. And this intentional agent is not necessarily a biological human being any more than the color green is like grass or the concept of height is like a skyscraper, right? This intentional agent is far more conceptual, as it were, it's far more abstract. And in this abstract way, Mills suggests that personhood, as we conceive it, is the result of a kind of causal attention that connects these bits and pieces of perception into an intentional narrative, close quote. Therefore, what he's suggesting is that personhood is an organizational activity that's ongoing from moment to moment and context to context. There is no self, there is no consciousness, and there is no sort of uh, individual behind all of it. Rather, it is the result of a causal connection uh, and attention that connects bits and pieces into an intentional narrative. That is a highly abstract idea, a highly abstract concept, but it is at least something that presents itself um, as separated from not only physical human body, but also as sort of conceptual individual or autonomous uh, consciousness, right? This is thinking about person here as a meaning. What, what does person mean? How can we sort of see instantiations of that in real life? I would actually urge you to read more uh, from Mills uh, because there's some larger implications that he suggests 
And you can find this in uh, week four additional resources. There's a link to this um, Times Higher Education Supplement that he wrote. And because what, what is being suggested here, again, is a kind of um, implication and set of implications for anthropology as a discipline, right? And as a scientific discipline in the kind of spirit of a Levi-Strauss science. Right. How do we deal with these um, empirical observations? How do we deal with the real um, perspectives of indigenous people around the world without relegating them to like the sort of category of irrational or superstitious or, you know, religious or something like that? All right. So thanks for your attention. Again, I urge you to read the article and I look forward to online seminars um, with um, Warren Ponds and Cloud students and for Burwood students. Um, I'm sure that you will have a great session with Adam uh, later on. Thank you.